Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Thank you. Well, what an honor to uh, finally be with you. Thomas brags on you all, all the time. But if you know Thomas, he is excited about absolutely everything. So that kind of doesn't mean anything, but he really does love you. In fact, I've told him if like half the things you say about this church is true, Thomas, this has to be the greatest church in the world. Uh, so um, it's, it really is. We're super excited about a chance to be connected. What a great city that you're in. Normally when I speak at our, our church plants, I spend a little time just affirming, you know, the city and the strategic role. But I mean, you guys are from London. You don't need to hear me say that. Uh, just what an incredible international um, city, the, uh, I mean, the diversity here is just mind boggling. Um, one of the diversity I was not expecting, um, I told Thomas this last night is the diversity of dress, um, that people have during this season, like, like walking around, there are people in shorts and a t-shirt and then like people right beside that look like they're ready for the snowpocalypse. You know, they got like big trench coats on. So I don't know if that's all the time or just, uh, this season, but, um, there's a, there's a charm in this city, um, uh, just, uh, that my wife is already saying lovely and brilliant now always. Uh, so I'll stick with awesome just because that's uh, my, uh, uh, my culture. But anyway, um, incredible honor to be here and, um, and to see this all firsthand. Um, so Acts chapter 6, if you got your Bible, I, I, it's right before the text um, that we read. Acts chapter 6. Um, years ago, years ago, CNN ran a story about a guy by the name of Larry Walker from Orange County, California. They described him as an average California citizen, if there were such a thing. And um, the story went like this, that um, one day, Larry goes out uh, and to the Army-Navy surplus store there in Orange County and buys 73 used Army weather balloons. Um, then, with the help of several friends that he had employed for this task, he attached them to a lawn chair and uh, set out, in his words, and I quote, to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle and thereby gain a new perspective on life. He took nothing with him on this journey except for a peanut butter sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and a fully loaded BB gun. You say, what on earth would you take those items for? His plan, according to this article, was that he would, um, you know, when he, when he untied his lawn chair, that he would, you know, with the help of these Army-Navy weather balloons, he would sort of like lazily saunter up to a nice altitude um, where he could observe the neighborhood from a different angle, and then he would take his peanut butter sandwich, enjoy a snack, Six pack of beer, he would have a great afternoon, and then when it was time for him to descend, he would just take the, the BB gun, and he would pop some of the balloons, and just lower the thing back down into the ground, which, what could possibly, possibly go wrong with that plan, right? Um, friends who observed this uh, reported that he said, it didn't, you, when Larry untied the rope, he did not lazily saunter up to a nice altitude. It said it looked like he had been fired out of a cannon. Uh, they said they untied the rope, and he just shot straight up. 
up. Um, so uh, Larry, they lost sight of him. Um, two and a half hours later, this is a kid you not, the Los Angeles International Airport reported an unidentified flying object in the skies above LAX, the, uh, the airport out there um, in Los Angeles, at 12,547 feet. That is two and a half miles in the sky. The pilot of the 737 who first spotted Larry said, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but it looks like there is a perfectly still man. I think it's a lawn chair. I think he's holding a rifle. I'm not really sure. Um, in a rescue stunt that would have made Nicolas Cage proud, they, uh, they sent up this um, SWAT team, basically, to um, figure out how to get him out. Because so, Larry was... Um, he was completely passed out. Uh, they managed somehow to get him into this helicopter and then got him down on the, um, on the, on the, on the tarmac. Um, in case you are, are, are wondering what happened, um, they, the reporter basically uncovered this, uh, that they, they said that, um, after he had untied this rope and shot up, uh, Larry said, well, you know, at that point I totally freaked out. So I did the only thing that I knew how to do in that moment. And that is drink beer, uh, to calm my nerves. Um, he drank four cans of beer. Uh, and then, so at that level, you know, your blood alcohol is all, uh, different. So he was completely passed out. Um, so they get the, him back on the ground and, um, the reporter that was writing the story asked Larry four questions or three questions. They said, Larry, number one, um, would you, uh, Larry, were you scared? And Larry said, what do you think? Yes, I was very, very scared. Uh, Larry, uh, number two, would you do this again? And Larry said, no, that's right. Um, uh, which is how you know, by the way, he's not from Mississippi or Alabama or wherever it is that Thomas is from. I ain't scared. I do that again. That's what, if you're from Thomas's neck of the woods, he would say. Uh, question number three was, Larry, why would you do that? And Larry's comment in this article is why I share this story. Um, he said, I just got tired of always sitting around. I just got tired of always sitting around. By the way, um, best part of this story is when he got on the ground, the first people to get to him were not the reporters. It was the Los Angeles Police Department, and they gave Larry a $4,000 ticket for the obstruction of airport traffic, which is, I think, the greatest uh, part of this story. Um, but I share that story because I think there is something in the heart. Uh, you, by the way, you're like, is that story true? I mean, I'm positive some of it has grown with internet legend, and the article acknowledged that, but the core of it is true, so the different, you know, uh, parts of it. Um, I share it because there's something in the heart of, I think, um, a younger generation, at least a lot of the college students that I work with and young professionals, that that's kind of how they are looking at life. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's just something in your life that says, I just want my life to matter. I want to know when it's all said and done that it wasn't just, you know, get a job, get married, pop out a few kids, and then that's it. Um, this generation, whether again, whether you're Christian or not, they've called it one of the, the most purpose-driven generations ever. There's just a, a desire to see a life impact. And so to that end, what I want to share with you is something that I think encapsulates what the Bible says about ordinary people and the way that they are supposed to live their lives in ways that, even though it may not be spectacular, that ultimately end up shaping all of Christian history. Um, he's an ordinary guy. His story is in Acts 6. His name is Stephen. And what I want to give you is four convictions that shaped his life that should shape yours and mine also. Stephen, the most important thing you can know about him is he is not an apostle. 
A lot of people get that wrong. They think Stephen, he's not. He's just an ordinary guy. Just an ordinary guy in the church. But what he did, and this is not an exaggeration, what he did literally changed the shape of Christian history. And so I want to show you the four convictions that shaped his life that should shape yours also. Here's the context. Stephen, as I mentioned, is not an apostle. Um, but his story is going to mark the turning point in the book of Acts. Up until this moment, you see, as far as we can tell, the gospel has yet to leave the borders of Jerusalem. Even though, even though Jesus had very clearly told the apostles that his plan was for the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Even though that's the plan he laid out, by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, the gospel has yet to leave the borders of Jerusalem. Um, it's been amazing. I mean, you know, 3,000 people get saved in an afternoon, and um, there's all kinds of miracles and healings and people getting struck dead in the offering. And so, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that's happening. But the bottom line is the gospel has yet to leave the borders of Jerusalem. That all changes with the story of Stephen. In chapter 6, Stephen gets elected to help deliver food to, um, uh, to, the, uh, to the widows so that the apostles can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, what you should hear from that is that Stephen's job, in one sense, was not that important. He wasn't elected, you know, um, president. He wasn't elected teacher. He didn't write any books. He was not considered to be one of the theological leaders of the early church. He was just a table waiter. He was the, the meals on wheels of the early church. But Acts 6-7 tells us that Stephen did that job so diligently, and he was so filled with the Spirit when he did it, it was so compelling that it got the attention of everyone in the community, including many of the Jewish priests, who began in large numbers to turn, in faith, to, turn to faith in Christ because of his service. Well, that got the attention of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin's goal was to discourage this Christian movement, this nascent Christian movement. So they began to try to discredit Stephen. I love this verse, Acts 6.10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which this ordinary layman was speaking. In Acts 7, they drag him before the Jewish council where Stephen proceeds to give the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. It basically is a pretty detailed history of um, Israel showing how all of um, the Old Testament points to Jesus, and Stephen's basic point was to the Jewish nation, you killed all the prophets that came before Jesus, and so you killed him too. Um, it comes to a crescendo in the passage that we looked at a moment ago that we read together. I won't, I won't read it again. But the point of the story is not given until the very, very end of it. It's an inspiring story, but it comes at the beginning of chapter 8. I'm actually going to read that again to you if you got the PowerPoint back there. Jump down to chapter 8, verse 1. People unfortunately break chapter 7 at the end of chapter 7. You know, when the Bible was written, it wasn't, there was no chapter breaks. And so, um, really, chapter 8 is a part of the story of, of chapter 7. Now, look at chapter 8, verse 1. There arose on that day, the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Watch this. See the next three words? Except the apostles. Jump down to verse 4. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now y'all, there it is. That is the first time the gospel leaves Jerusalem. The first time. And I want you to let this sink in. Not a single apostle was involved. Not even indirectly. There are no apostles in this story. Last time you see an apostle, they've actually stepped back from the ministry so they can focus on 
you know, a different kind of ministry. Stephen, it's his preaching that provokes the riot. It is all these people that leave in this persecution. They are scattering and preaching the word everywhere. And even Luke, the author of the book of Acts, even goes out of his way to tell you there's no apostles in there. There was no apostles. That way of telling this story is intentional. Because what Luke is trying to show you is the way the gospel will spread throughout the world. Keep in mind, Acts 1-8 is your outline of the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Luke, the author of Acts, goes out of his way to show you that when it actually comes time for the gospel to go out, it's not an apostle that does it. And by apostle, I mean somebody in full-time ministry like me, like Thomas, like a couple of your other pastors. It is just ordinary people. So what I want to give you is four convictions of an ordinary person that ought to shape the life of every Christian and what will happen in the world when those are true. Here's number one. God intends to use me. God intends to use me. These, by the way, are not brilliant. You're not going to have a lot of big words. It's just number one. God intends to use me. Let me tell you a little secret. Historically, the gospel has always traveled around the world faster through ordinary people like Stephen than it has in the mouths of apostles. Ordinary believers have always been the tip of the gospel spear. Um, There's a historian by the name of Stephen Neal. He wrote a book called The History of Christian Missions. And what he says is, the only thing more remarkable than the rapidity of the spread of the gospel in the first century, the only thing more remarkable than that is its anonymity. He said, by the end of the first century, you had three major church planting centers in the world, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. He said, what is remarkable about all three of those church planting centers is we have no idea who planted the churches in any of those three. Um, The story of the founding of the church in Antioch is recorded for us in Luke 11, or sorry, Acts 11, and all it says, I won't take time to read it, but all it says is, some brothers came who were filled with the Spirit and they planted a church. Some brothers is Luke's way of saying a bunch of guys whose names I'm not going to tell you because they're not really significant anyway. You're never going to hear from them again. It's like bystander bystander number three in the credits at the end of the movie. Just kind of unnamed guys. But they planted a church in Antioch that one day would send out the Apostle Paul. Um, The founding of the church in Rome. We always associate Paul and Peter with Rome. They did not found the church in Rome. In fact, it's a little bit of dark irony because Paul wants to found the church in Rome. If you read Acts, the whole last half of the book of Acts is Paul like bound and determined to get the gospel to Rome. You know, and what a journey it is, right? I mean, the whole last, you know, Paul is beaten and shipwrecked and gets bitten by a snake that hangs off of his arm. I mean, it's like finally drags his tired old body into Rome, you know, Acts 28. I I finally made it here. I'm going to be able to preach to Caesar's household. And Acts 28, 11 says when he gets there, he's greeted by the brothers, In other words, a bunch of unnamed guys whose names we're not going to tell you also because they're insignificant. The whole point is the gospel has always gone forward faster on the mouths of ordinary people than it is um, in the mouths of apostles. Why do I share that with you? It is because when you look at recent Christian history and you look at the spread of the gospel in today's world, What you're looking at is, yes, we thank God for people like Thomas and apostolic type figures like that, but ultimately, that's not really when it goes fastest. Um, Right now, there are, um, most missiologists talk about um, the largest number of unsaved people 
uh, or live in what they call the 1040 window, which is between the 40th parallel and the um, or 10th latitude. And so uh, if you add up all evangelical missionaries that live in the 1040 window, the number is, I think, 40,000. And that's like from every denomination. Uh, I'll say this from the perspective of an American. The number of Americans, just United States citizens, and I would imagine it'd be even more uh, British, the number of Americans living in the 1040 window right now, currently, is 2 million. Now, 36% of Americans identify as born again. That number is not really true, so let's just write off two-thirds of those. It's not that serious, okay? Um, let's just say that, uh, that, that, that one-third of that number is actually serious. What that means is, in the 1040 window right now, if you had every serious believer there that understood that God's primary place that he put them was for the purpose of the Great Commission, your number of missionaries, so to speak, would go from 40,000 to 240,000, and it wouldn't cost the church another dime. We have to develop this thing that I've heard some theologians call a theology of place. A theology of place recognizes that God put me where he put me with a lot of reasons, but the primary reason was I'm here to be a disciple maker. I'm here because I'm supposed to be filled with the Spirit like these guys in Antioch and just see the church grow where I am. You understand that, 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 that God arranges Acts 17, the borders of nations, for the purpose of the spread of the gospel. One of the reasons you have to think that God is doing what he's doing in this city, why the neighbors around you, why your neighborhood is becoming what it's becoming, is very simply because God has arranged it this way for the purposes of the Great Commission. And what a person who understands this, like Stephen says, God intends to use me. God, instant, God intends to use me. I am a vehicle that God intends to use for the gospel, and that plays into the second conviction. The second conviction is the Holy Spirit fills me. The Holy Spirit fills me. What makes Stephen remarkable is his confidence, which is especially remarkable when you think that he's just an ordinary guy. He's never been to seminary, as far as we know. You know, he never spent any time in Jesus' group of disciples. He's just a, an ordinary guy, yet he is so um, filled with the Holy Spirit that he is able to do something that catalyzes the entire Christian movement. Stephen understood something that Jesus promised, and that is the extraordinary effectiveness of people, ordinary people who simply have the Holy Spirit speaking through them. Jesus gave such extraordinary promises about the possibilities of ordinary people who were just submissive to the Spirit. In fact, one of my favorite promises, uh, Matthew 11, Jesus said, um, of all those born among women, which would be everybody, um, there's never been a greater preacher than, you know this, by the way, Bible trivia. Who is the greatest preacher ever to live according to Jesus? Who is it? All right, starts with J, rounds with on the Baptist. You got it? John the Baptist. Um, Jesus loved the preaching of John the Baptist. He podcasted John the Baptist, you know, whatever. He, 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 just, he, he was into it. Um, never been anybody greater than John the Baptist. He said, but surely I tell you, the one who is least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Now, you think, all right, just think with me for a minute. What does it mean to be least in Jesus' kingdom? What would that phrase mean? Well, it would mean you, what, have the least potential, you have the least spiritual gifts, you know the least about the Bible, right? You have the worst personality. I mean, somebody in this room right now, I don't know who you are, 
right? But somebody here is the least of the kingdom of heaven in here. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying mathematically that has to be true. Somebody is at the very bottom. Right now you're thinking, I think that might be me. And God in heaven is like, yep, it's you, right? You know, you're at the bottom of the pile. Even if that's true, what Jesus is saying and what, John, what Stephen understood is you have more potential in ministry than John the Baptist had. Why? Because you have something John did not have. And that is you have the permanent infusion of the Holy Spirit. John had the Holy Spirit come upon him, but you have him permanently fused to your soul so that from that point onward, like Stephen understood, it was no longer about his abilities in ministry. It was about his availability to the Holy Spirit. That he just had to say yes and let God actually work through him. You know, um, one of my other ones, and again, I feel like these are verses that just go over our heads. We don't even pay attention to them, but Jesus said them. Uh, John 16, 7, I'll put this one up here for you. Um, John 16, 7, nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. By the way, the phrase, I tell you the truth, Jesus was not in the habit of telling lies. He didn't have to clarify, like, actually now, guys, I'm being serious. Whenever he uses a phrase like that, it's because what he is about to say is so mind-boggling that unless you turn your mind on, it's going to go right over your head. And that's what happens with this verse. Nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It is to your, see that word? Advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. It is to your advantage, Jesus says, that I go. Can you all imagine how absurd that must have sounded to those first apostles, right? I mean, how awesome would it be to have Jesus as your ministry companion? Right? You ever think about that? Like, what's that? I mean, Thomas is a great leader, but imagine if Jesus was the guy who was, you know, meeting with you and coaching you. Right? I mean, you go out for a tough day of ministry. You come back, you've got really difficult questions about Calvinism. Bam, Jesus answers them right there perfectly. You go to your small group and you run out of, you know, what, checks mix, and bam, Jesus multiplies the checks mix, so there's 12 baskets left over. Um, your dog dies. Bam, Jesus raises your dog back from the dead. Your cat dies. Jesus digs a hole to help bury the cat, get rid of that thing forever. Um, is that culturally, is that, okay, well, all right, so, um, all right, that's probably not exactly what it would be like, but the point is it would be awesome. It'd be awesome for Jesus to be your ministry companion, yet Jesus is saying, and he even says, to tell you the truth, like he's really emphasizing it, if you understood who the Holy Spirit was and what he could do through you, you would actually be glad I was going back if it meant that you got him. So let's just do a little reality check. How many of you, if you had a choice between having Jesus here or the Holy Spirit inside of you, which one would you actually choose? I mean, if I stood up here and said, hey, one of the reasons I'm here, bad news, it's really sad, Thomas is leaving. You know, everybody goes, oh, Thomas is leaving. And I'm like, no, no, don't worry about it. We already got a new pastor. Jesus of Nazareth is going to be here next week. I'm guessing you're going to be inviting friends back next week and be like, you cannot believe who's going to be. Of course, are you as excited that you're walking out of here with the Holy Spirit inside of you? If not, doesn't it show you that whatever that means, you are pretty far away from it? Because Jesus said, if you really understood what was possible, then you would actually choose, if you had me, the choice of me, Jesus, in front of you or the Holy Spirit inside you, you choose the Holy Spirit every single time. Because from that point onward, it was no longer about your abilities in ministry. It was simply about whether or not you could just say yes to Jesus. 
This is, I'm giving you one story here, Stephen. All throughout the book of Acts, Luke takes these moments just to kind of pepper this in there. Um, uh, Philip is another guy at the end of chapter 8. Again, just an ordinary guy, not an apostle. He's out doing ministry. The Holy Spirit directs him to go up to this little dusty road, and he does in obedience to the, just in the middle of nowhere. He goes out there, and he doesn't know why he's there, and along by comes a guy that we now refer to as the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, shares the gospel with him. This Ethiopian eunuch becomes a Christian, gets baptized, goes back to sub-Saharan Africa where he's from, and according to Eusebius, the church historian, starts not only a church, but a church planting movement there in sub-Saharan Africa, which historians say you can actually connect what's happened in Africa all the way back to what this Ethiopian eunuch did just by one ordinary guy that just said yes to the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you aware of that and are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Um, I read this thing in an article, um, missions article, it said that, do you know who it is, what denomination does the best job mobilizing its people for missions? Thomas ever told you this? Because, you know, the answer is supposed to be Baptist. That's just, I mean, like, we're the missions people. Right? You know, like, well, yeah, so that's all, if you, li- if, if you know anything about Christianity, think of every great mission speaker. They're all Baptist. David Platt, John Piper, Louis Giggly, they're all Baptist. So I'm like, what's got to be Baptist? This article said, you would think it would be the Baptist, but it's not. The denomination that does the greatest job motivating its people for mission, this article said, are the Pentecostals. And it said the reason, the one reason that they are so good at it, at mobilizing, is because they emphasize being aware of and sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how to know that he is about to use you. They say Baptists emphasize and Reformed people emphasize the enormity of the need that ends up being crushing because no one person can really carry the weight of the whole thing. But this article said for a Pentecostal, they understand that they may not be responsible for the entire thing, but they can be responsible just to obey in this moment and let the Holy Spirit use them. Now, that is not me, you know, coming out of the closet saying that, you know, I'm really, in the, I'm a Baptist for convictional reasons. It is simply to say that we have got to be able to listen to and discern where the Holy Spirit is leading us. It'd be a good question for you to ask yourself. When's the last time I felt moved of the Holy Spirit to do something? When's the last time that I really knew to follow his leadership? Um, I, I get it. There are things that are different about the book of Acts and today. I, I understand that. I understand that the apostles were writing the Bible. But you cannot convince me that the only book that we have that describes what it looks like to walk with the Holy Spirit has a bunch of stories of people whose experiences have nothing in common with us. Do you know there are 40 miracles in the book of Acts? 39 of the 40 happen outside of the church. That means that, you know, Thomas and I, who work in the church, I've got access to about 140th of the available power of God. That's not great theology, but it's, it's, uh, it, you understand the point. The point is the majority of what he wants to do, he wants to just do in the community. For Phillips and Stephen and people like you just by saying yes. Um, I can't help but think of this. Uh, when I was in college, referred to this earlier, and God was um, calling me to ministry, me and a, a group of students really felt like God was calling us to put on this, um, I guess you just think of a, like an evangelism night. And um, we planned, I raised money, I was good at raising money, um, so I, we, we raised a bunch of money, we bought a bunch of hot dogs, 
and t-shirts and frisbees and it was just like we were going to do this thing for the community um the day before it was going to happen i knew it was going to bomb um I, I bombed at a lot of things in my life. I knew exactly what it feels like when it's about to happen. And um, I was like, this is, because nobody was talking about it. Nobody heard of it. I mean, we were telling nobody, we put up flyers everywhere. I was like, this is going to bomb. Um, so we're having our last little leadership meeting. There's four of us at, at, at the table. And I'm trying to be confident and bold about what's going to happen. And, uh, and so we're, we're praying. And all of a sudden, um, what, this one girl on our leadership team, her name was Amy. She was one of the quietest people I had ever been around. I mean, painfully shy. Like, she'd be in a room for an hour, and you wouldn't know she was there. Um, all of a sudden, we're talking, and I hear this commotion. We're in the, 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 like the dining hall, and there's about 500 students in there. I hear this commotion, and I look up, and Amy is standing on the table. Just like, and she starts stamping her foot on that table. And I was like, good Lord, what is happening right now? And she gets the whole place quiet. 500 people just get dead silent. And she said, I know this is really strange. She said, but tomorrow night, we're going to have a guy who's going to stand up and tell you about the biggest change that has happened in our lives. It's about Jesus. And we just really want all you guys to be there. And I just wanted to tell you that. She said, and we're going to have free hot dogs. And then she sat down. And I mean, it was, it, was more, it, is, it was as awkward as I am describing it to you right now. And she, uh, I was like, Amy, what in the world? And she said, I don't know. When we were praying, I just felt like God told me to do that. I was like, all right. <laughs> um, I'm not telling you that if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, he's going to have you get up on top of restaurants and stamp your foot. In fact, I would actively discourage that, okay? But... What I will tell you is that the next night, we end up having 750 students show up. I had 52 people that professed faith in Christ on that night. And I knew more than any of the planning and inviting we did is because you had somebody that just said, I'm just going to listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, There is more potential in one act of obedience to the Holy Spirit than there is in all the apostolic planning. That's kind of the whole point. Luke just kind of arranges and says, look what all the apostles did. By Acts chapter 6, they're still hanging out singing Kumbaya in Jerusalem. One act of the Holy Spirit did more for the forward progress of the gospel. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit and just obeying him? That's kind of the point. Here's your, your, your third conviction. The third conviction Stephen has is, number three, as Jesus was to me, so I will be to others. As Jesus was to me, I will be to others. Verse 59 might be my favorite part of this whole story. Because verse 59 gives you a window into Stephen's soul, showing us what Stephen was thinking about at the very moment of his death. Let me put it back up on the screen for you. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Here's a question. Where have you heard those two phrases before? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. They are almost identical to what Jesus said when he died, right? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems that in Stephen's dying moments, Stephen was thinking about what Jesus had said on the cross, things that Jesus, Stephen had heard Jesus pray for him, Stephen is now praying those very things for others. In his dying moments, Stephen is attempting to do for others what Jesus had done for him because, you see, that is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. 
is you begin to look at your life for others in the same way that Jesus looked at his life for you. So let me just ask a very basic question. Where would you be without Jesus? Where would you be without Jesus? Let me give you a sort of a different answer to that. You would be at exactly the same place that millions of people are in the world without you and me. Because it's like Martin Luther said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. An essential part of preaching the gospel, or an essential part of, of, of salvation is the preaching of the gospel, the act of salvation. In one sense, you know, Jesus has completed it, it is finished, but in another sense, Paul would say the gospel is not complete until it's been shared. Carl F.H. Henry used to say the gospel is only good news for somebody if it gets to them in time. That demands something of us. Have you wrestled with the implications and the obligations that you owe to the gospel? To go back to what I said in the interview with Thomas earlier, have you ever really grappled with the fact of what it means for 2.2 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus? Have you grappled with what it means for there to be people in your life that are perishing for lack of knowledge? Because what Stephen shows you is that, that really what I'm going to do for somebody else is just what Jesus did for me. Where would I be without Jesus? I'd be at exactly the same place millions of people are in the world without me. I remember sharing Christ with a girl not long ago who was from the Northeast and she, um, you know, Northeast United States, and, and she'd grown up in the United States, but she'd never heard somebody explain the gospel to her. And as we're going through, she had all these questions, and then eventually she stopped. She'd, she'd gone to, I think, I think it was Princeton, and she was like, she's like, so you actually believe this? And I said, well, yeah. She said, you don't act like you believe it. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, she said, you act when you talk to me, you act like this is an intellectual, like you're, trying, like you're sparring with me, like you're trying to win a debate. She said, if I believed what you said you believed, she said, I'm not sure emotionally how I'd make it through the day. She said, I knew no, that there would not be a single person in my life that I called friend that I had not gone to on my knees and just pleaded with them, you've got to listen to what I'm saying about the gospel. She said, when I listen to you, it's, it just, it's without emotion. She said it's an intellectual argument, not something that really reflects what you say you believe. One of the questions you have to ask yourself is, do you actually believe the gospel? Because those who believe the gospel become like the gospel. It is impossible to believe what we say we believe and not do what Stephen did, which is, Lord, what does it take to convince this group that this really is truth? That didn't start, by the way, for Stephen when he stood at this moment. That started when he started to serve these widows. That's probably the biggest thing to, to, to you look around at your community and say, what would Jesus be in this community? Where would he be? What needs would he be meeting? How do I begin to pour out my life so when we come to the moment that Stephen comes to at the end of Acts 7, it's really the result of a whole life that's been lived trying to be for others what Jesus is to you. So that's your third conviction. As Jesus was to me, so I will be to others. Here's your fourth and final one. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And let's return one time, final time to Acts chapter 7. As they begin to hurl stones at Stephen, he said, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing 
at the right hand of God. Scholars point out that what Stephen saw is odd because everywhere else we see Jesus at the right hand of God. In the Bible, he's always what? He's always sitting. So, in fact, it's actually a very important theological point because his sitting is supposed to be the representation that the work of salvation is done. So it's very odd that when Stephen looks up and sees Jesus, he sees Jesus standing. Why would this one place depict Jesus as standing? The only explanation I think that makes any sense is Jesus in that moment is standing to receive home his son. Because in that moment, the whole world, it seems, has risen up against Stephen to say, you are a fool, you are a heretic, your life is a waste, you're a blasphemer, you're a traitor. And Jesus, it's almost like he can't help it. He just stands up and says, no. Now they call you fool, I call you son. They call you a waste, I call you my good and faithful servant. And so Stephen, in that moment, he looks up and with face beaming with angelic brightness, his basically, his, not his words, but his life says, Jesus, you're worth it. One of the things that I've learned watching this now over many years and also in my own life is the only thing that will enable you to go all the way with Jesus is the conviction deep in your soul that Jesus is worth anything, any price, no matter what it costs. When you first come to Jesus, a lot of times we talk about it like it brings peace and it brings fulfillment and brings satisfaction and all those things are true, y'all. But you understand at some point following Jesus, at some point, if you're going to be faithful to him, at some point following Jesus is going to take you 180 degrees opposite of the direction you think you want to go. At some point, that's what happens. And in that moment, you got to decide whether you think Jesus is actually worth it. And you got to say whether it means stoning or whether it means walking away from a relationship or doing something financially or transferring in a job because you think God wants you to do that or if it means going over and living amongst one of these unreached people groups or if it means reaching out to your neighbor or enduring the scorn you've got to say him standing is worth anything else um, when I served as a missionary um, I've been there about six months uh, and I got a call from um, a friend of mine who lived about three hours south of me one of the only other Christians I knew in the area, and he said, hey, I need your help right now. And uh, I was like, what's going on? He's like, yeah, you know, I can't tell you. Um, we had this little, I, we knew, he said, he said um, our phones were, it was pretty sure they were, they were tapped, and, and it was a, so he's like, I can't tell you. I was like, he said, just meet me at the place. So I got on this bus, I drive down three hours, meet him, and when I go in there, there's a guy who's in his early 30s. His name was Fajar, he was a Muslim. And um, Fajar, uh, my friend said to Fajar, he said, tell him what you just told me, uh, or, or what you told me yesterday. And so I sat there, and my friend was helping translate, because at that point, I didn't really know the language. And Fajar said, he said, well, he said, about a month ago, he said, I had this, um, I don't know what you call it, maybe a dream? He said, vision, dream, I don't know what it is. He said, but in this vision, this dream, he said, I was in this field, and as far as you could see, in front of you, behind you, to the right, to the left, it was like a desert. All you could see was just emptiness. He said, you know, I, I feel like somehow that field is supposed to represent my life. He said, I'm a very committed Muslim. I've always been a Muslim. He said, but 
it just feels like I, I just feel lost and I feel alone. He said, after walking through this field for what felt like hours, he said, I heard a voice behind me call my name. And I turned around and he said, there was this man there. And this man was, you know, towering above me. He had, uh, was what he said. His face was like the sun. And he said, I couldn't look at his face. And this man said, Fajar, reached inside of his robe, pulled out this copy of the Injil, which is their word for the gospel. And he said, he pulled out a copy of the gospel and said, Fajar, this is the only thing that will get you out of this field. He said, I knew that was Christian. And I knew that as a Muslim, I was not allowed to touch it. He said, so I pulled back and said, no, I cannot touch that. He said, immediately when I said that, he said, I woke up, I was in this cold sweat. And he said, I knew that I'd made a terrible mistake. He said, second night, I went to sleep and I had the exact same dream. Again, I walked for what felt like hours to this field. And he said, again, he suddenly appeared and he called my name again and said, Fajar, this is the only thing that's going to get you out of this field. He said, this time I wanted to take it. I want, he said, but I just couldn't work out the courage. I kept telling myself, just reach out and take it. He said, but I couldn't. And eventually I just stood there paralyzed and eventually I just kind of shook my head. He said, and the moment that I did that, he said, I woke up and I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. He said, third night, I didn't even want to go to sleep because I was afraid of what was going to happen. He said, sure enough, the moment that I closed my eyes and sleep, I had my eyes open in this field. And this time he was standing there. There was no walking around. It was just him. And he said, Fajar, this is the last time I'm going to tell you. This injil is the only thing that can get you out of this field. He said, this time I watched, and um, he said, I could see my hands. It was almost like it was, you know, somebody else was controlling him. He said, I looked up, and he said, I could see him shaking. And I reached out, and I, I took this injil, and I pulled it into my chest. And I just hugged it for a minute, and I just held it. And he said, the next morning, I woke up peacefully in my bed. He said, now, that was a month ago. And he looks at me and, and, and he says, my friend tells me that you are expert at Injil. He said, can you tell me what my dream means? Now, I already said this. I'm a Baptist. I was, went to Baptist seminaries. Dreams and the interpretations thereof, that's not what we learned in Baptist seminary. Um, I am pleased to tell you I knew exactly what to say in that moment. I'm like, bro, you were so in luck. Dream interpretation is my spiritual gift. Uh, and I said, I'd be happy to tell you what that dream means. And I was probably, we probably spent the next three hours until the, you know, till almost till dawn. As I walked him through just the story of the gospel and walked him through from Genesis to Revelation, showing how it all just kind of pointed to Jesus. And we got to the part where Jesus goes to the cross. And Fajar stopped me. He says, he says now you're telling me that this is God, the creator of the world, that is dying here in this cross for me. And I said, well, Fajan, that's not what I'm telling you. It's what, it's what the Bible's telling you. Never forget, he gets these big tears in his eyes, and he kind of puts his you know, hands up, and he says, Allahu Akbar, which is you know, what they say for God is the greatest. And uh, so we get to the end of my little gospel presentation, and I was like, Fajar, would you like to receive Christ? And uh, he said, oh, with all my heart. And I said, well, um, I mean, I only know one way to do this. Every head bowed, every eye closed. So I'm going to get you to invite Jesus into your heart. And uh, so he bows his head, and I, I start to walk him through the, the sinner's prayer. He gets like two phrases into it. And I was like, Fajar, stop. Wait a minute. I was like, I just need to make sure you understand. This is a big deal. Like, you're not just you're praying to Jesus. You're going to become a follower of Jesus, and then we're going to baptize you. And when you get baptized, you know that you might lose your job. You might get kicked out of your family. You and I both know people in this region that have lost their lives because they did this. 
I was like, are you sure that you want to do this? I mean, you know, like worst missionary ever. But I mean, I'm like, are you sure that you want to do this? And he goes, oh, he said, with all my heart. I said, but, but, but are you thinking about what's going to happen? And he said, he said, of course I'm thinking about that. He said, why do you think it took me a month to work up the courage and come and talk with you? He said, but during that month, I decided... I knew you were going to tell me. I knew when I finally talked to a Christian that they were going to tell me that that was Jesus in my dream. And I knew enough to know that Christians believe that he had died for me. And I made up my mind that if the man in that dream had actually died for me, then I would go with him anywhere, no matter what I had to leave behind. At which point I said, I think you need to leave me in the sinner's prayer because I feel like I need to get saved again after you just said that. You know, when you hear a story like that, there's something in the heart of the believer that says, like, yes, right? Jesus is worth it. And you're like, yes! What I'm going to tell you is that it is hypocritical. It is hypocritical for you and I to have a thrill of heart and say amen to a story like that and not be willing to do what it takes to get the gospel to people like that. Because the cost to follow Jesus in Southeast Asia for a Muslim is severe. The cost to get the gospel to people in Southeast Asia or into this community, that's also severe. And if you're going to say yes to Fajar being willing to do that to follow Jesus, then you have to be willing to say yes to what it takes to get the gospel to people like that so they can believe. The whole book of Acts is not the story. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. This is not the Acts of Thomas or J.D. or anything else. It's ordinary people who just live by four convictions. God intends to use me. I'm the tip of the gospel spear. The Holy Spirit fills me, right? I, 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 have, I have more ability than John the Baptist because of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus was to me, that's how I'm going to be to others. I'm going to use my resources, my time, my treasure, my talents for him just like Jesus did for me. And then you're going to say, Jesus is worth it. So that whether I'm walking away from convenience or I'm walking away from family or whether I'm going to the other side of the world, I can say the one who's standing is the one that I'm going toward. And he's worth no matter what I got to leave behind. That's Fajar's testimony. It's the testimony of every person who gets the gospel to somebody like Fajar. It'll be your testimony when you see God reach this community. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. minute we're going to worship again as usual there'll be a time of ministry right up here if you need somebody to pray for you I will just say I would I would be loath to close without saying maybe you are here and maybe you're just the kind of person that you're like look I that sounds really appealing if it's true and maybe you need to have some discussions with somebody. I want you to know that Pastor Thomas and other leaders of this church, David, they're here really for that reason. For curious people who want to know more about Jesus and they'd love to talk to you. You need ministry, then you come and you receive it. But Father, we pray right now that Jesus would be as clear and bright in our eyes as he was in Stephen's. We pray, Father, that there would be faith. We pray that there would be an awareness, not of how much we need to do for you, but of how much you've done for us that would move us to worship and to joyful surrender. 
in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that in light of how great a sacrifice has been given to us, it would be our reasonable response of worship to lay our lives down and surrender to you. We pray and ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name.